and 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 it's and you're totally right, right? It's the overnight successes. It's the and people like whenever you succeed in doing something, and oh, actually, we only hear about the success stories, right? Right. For every one of the people on the cover of Forbes, there are literally thousands that started and didn't make it, right? Not because they're not capable. Not because it's just that the 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 forces that come into play to make you successful are so varied and it's you really do have to get a little lucky you know uh you have to you have to build a luck trap so you can capture luck right and i think for me for me the luck trap is a is a hard work component but you definitely have to get lucky Hello, and thank you uh, for joining me today. I am Toby Tompkins, and uh, this is the very first episode of a new podcast called Leading in a Virtual World. Um, I am the founder um, of an organization called Safio, S-A-F-I-O-O, and Safio actually deals with how leaders grow and develop in a world um, where they are working with and managing distributed and remote workforces. Um, I've been thinking about this podcast for a long time, um, and it just seems like, of course, with the events of the world today, so many of us have been um, unknowingly thrust into a whole new reality of how we lead, how we work, how we build and manage relationships, and and it's just a real uh, moment not only of crisis um, because of, of course COVID-19 but the ability and the opportunity to look beyond COVID-19 um, and then begin to think about and talk with people who are thinking about what that new normal will look like. Um, in case you haven't figured it out already the world is never going to be the same again um, and that's both an opportunity and a real point of departure for a lot of people who are in the world to produce value, to produce products and services, to solve problems, to protect the rights of those who need justice. And moving from a physical reality to a virtual reality to continue to address those things is really going to be on the hearts and minds of a lot of people and a lot of leaders um, everywhere in the world. And the purpose of this podcast is to meet those people, to hear from those people, to learn from those people, to share with those people. Um, so we'll be talking to startup entrepreneurs and small business owners and cultural creatives and academics. Uh, we'll be talking to corporate leaders, all who are committed to unleashing innovation, driving business results, and um, also um, achieving great social impact and social value, but doing all of that virtually. Um, now, what does virtual mean? And I think that's going to be a big question moving forward. Like, what does it mean virtually? Does it mean that we're all just a set of emoji faces behind hidden identities? I think it actually means something very different. Um, I think it means that more than ever before, perhaps um, in a way that we've never had to be intentional around, we have to lead with a human touch. 
the one thing I think we forget about technology, um, all of the technology that we have in the world today, is that technology is nothing without a human touch, without its relationship to a human being. Um, and so it's the being part as leaders that we have to focus on. Um, the human part was kind of essential and understood, and it's the one thing we have as a common denominator. But how we are being as humans in relationships to the tools of technology that we have available to us today is what is going to determine the quality, the caliber, and the evolution, elevation of our leadership. Um, so, so, so that's why I created this podcast. Um, I'm going to encourage you to subscribe now, to comment often and verbosely, um, to reach out to me if you have any questions or comments or ideas, or if you have a thought or an opinion or an experience that you want to share. I welcome um, the possibility of exploring a podcast with you as well as a guest on the show. And you can do that at Toby at Safio, S-A-F-I-O-O.com. That's T-O-B-Y at S-A-F-I-O-O.com. So once again, thanks for joining. I'm so excited because, you know, when you're starting something new, you always want to, you ask yourself, well, who or what represents, embodies the, the sort of core essence, the, the heart of why you're doing something. Um, and I'm fortunate to have known and to know a lot of really talented and, and visionary people um, who are in varying leadership roles from the arts to um, science. And um, the person who's with me today um, um, entered the planet um, many, many years after I did, but I feel like we have uh, sat in the same classroom of life many times before. So I, I'm happy to have um, as our guest today um, a young, very talented, very visionary um, entrepreneur named Raim Diallo. And Raim is the co-founder of Jinjan Brothers, which is a combination of two things. One, it's an incredible, um, totally healthy um, ginger drink that um, is the result of a recipe that his mother um, used um, throughout his childhood in Guinea, who then he and his brother uh, moved to the United States and launched a Epicurean brand of African drink that has all of these wonderful, amazing healing properties. I drink it and I mean, I'm a 58 year old man and I feel like I'm 28. So I'm not going to give them all the credit, but I'm going to give them a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> but then he went in and they did something. He and his brother Mohammed did something else. They moved into what, um, and I don't know if you have ever had the chance to go to Harlem, but what used to be the, 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 the shining star of Harlem was 125th Street. Um, it was the epicenter of the black economy many years ago. And now, as a result of the gentrification, um, most of the Black-owned businesses are gone. I don't even think there are five Black-owned businesses on 125th Street anymore. And, and all of 125th Street hasn't been gentrified. So what do you do when you're a young tech entrepreneur looking for the right opportunity to open up um, an Epicurean drink shop, right? You move to perhaps one of the most challenging parts of 125th Street, um, 
in a neighborhood that has been occupied by uh, people in varying stages of non-recovery who have had really big challenges um, with safety and crime. That's where you move to open up your new cafe to in bring in and engage people in a diaspora conversation to celebrate um, an Afropolitan way of being and a future and a possibility for everyone. And that to me um, took real, I think the word is chutzpah, but that's what Raim and his brother Mohammed have done. Um, and I know, um, because I talk to not only entrepreneurs, but small business owners, um, tech entrepreneurs and small business owners, and Raheem and his brother Mohammed are both at the same time. That is not something else that I would advise a lot of people to do, but I know that it is no piece of cake. And yet these two young 30-something men um, who really have not much more than each other to rely upon um, have done that. And not only have they done it, they're doing an excellent job at it. So I've invited Raheem, he's here. Um, we're just gonna talk. You know, this is a conversation between friends um, at a moment in this country and in the world where um, COVID-19 isn't just a virus, it's a catalyst. It's a catalyst for a global reset that we are in the midst of right now. And being able to recognize it as a catalyst and recognize the fact that we're in a global reset poses some really interesting opportunities and challenges, not to mention threats for each and every one of us. So with that, I just wanna say welcome, Raheem. Thank you very much for agreeing to be my first host um, or my first guest um, on leading in a virtual world. Thank you, Toby. Um, it's very, very kind words and a really good and nice introduction. Um, I'm honored to be <clears throat> the first guest you have on the, on the podcast. You've mentioned it to me in passing a few times. We discussed it. I think it's a brilliant idea. Um, you know, it's anyone that doesn't see um, not only the benefits, but the, inevit the inevitable direction of, of um, where the world is going, be it business or just everyday interpersonal relationships. Uh, the virtual world will probably bring us more together than it will keep us apart. And I think for leaders around the world, um, they'll be ignoring this trend at their own peril, right? So I think over the evolution of this podcast, you'll, um, I'm confident you'll, you'll teach us all a lot about how to make that transition and do it successfully. Thank you. So I, I, I want you to tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself and, and your brother's not here, but feel free to speak for him as well. And um, because your story is so American, you know what I mean? It, it really, really is. And I think it's, I, I want you to just, you know, just share that with us so that we understand um, the journey that you've on, you're on and, and how it began and where and how long ago. Sure. Um, our story, my brother and I is, um, like you said, it's the, in some sense, it's a, it's a typical um, or atypical, I guess, immigrant story. It's, it's um, the millions of other immigrants that have come here and have these amazing stories about how they came to America with a backpack, you know, with a backpack or one change of clothes 
and land here and go on to build everything from, you know, the Carnegie Steel Company to Bank of America and, and other larger institutions like that. Um, my brother came here at 11 years old. He came at a fairly young age. Um, and I came when I was 15. And in both cases, um, we came without our parents. Um, I mean, we arrived with our parents, but it was just on vacation and they left us here and went back. Uh, I came four years later than my brother. And we were taken in with a variety of people that took care of us, everything from friends of the family to total strangers. Um, and I will not go into all the details of what happened <laughs> uh, because that would be a five hour <laughs> or longer podcast. But um, we can do it in parts. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it in parts, right? Um, you know, being taken out of your out of your country, right, and essentially being uprooted and coming to a place where you don't know your friend, you don't have a friend, you don't have family, um, and you you don't speak the language, right? Uh, at at the, in your teenage years when life is difficult enough as a teenager, let alone having to adjust to all these new things, uh, was, um, was pretty challenging to say the least. But it's been, it's kind of what has given us the fortitude to push through with everything else that came after that. You know, um, we were lucky enough to actually come in, um, you're lucky enough to have come across a lot of people that have been very generous with their time, with their resources to make sure that um, we stay on the right path. And as much as we'd like to take credit for um, how we got to where we are, a lot of it, you know, belongs to people that were leading us when we had no idea where we're going, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so my bro, you know, prophet, my, my, after, uh, my brother was here at, at, at 11 years old, came here, Live with a family in uh, in Atlanta, uh, friends of the family that um, wasn't exactly an ideal living uh, environment for him, um, and he ended up being kicked out of the house at 16 years of age, um, not because he's a bad kid, but because, well, the family was expecting more from my family to take care of my brother than we could provide. Right. Um, and now in Atlanta, he found himself more or less homeless, uh, had to find a way to get back up to New York. And eventually another friend of my father's uh, took him in in, um, in New Hampshire, right? And he graduated high school there, came back to New York, uh, illegal, without papers. So he couldn't, and he was a super, super talented high school um, student. He's a phenomenal athlete. He was an amazing basketball player. He was an amazing soccer player. He could have had, uh, he had scholarships waiting for him to go to Penn State, Boston University to play college, uh, you know, collegiate level soccer. And he was actually a better basketball player than he was a soccer player. So that, to kind of frame that for you, right? right. Um, but he couldn't take advantage of any of those opportunities because he didn't have papers, right? Mm -hmm. And he couldn't afford to pay for his own schooling. Uh, so without the scholarship, they couldn't do it. Comes back to New York, uh, did every job on the face of the earth from washing cars in the, in the dead of winter in New York City to working for a moving company that took him an hour and a half to two hours to commute to 
uh, working six hours a uh, six days a week, uh, twelve hour days, for I think two hundred and fifty dollars, right? Wow. And um, and everything, everything from driving cabs, like I said, to washing cars, any stereotypical immigrant job you can imagine in New York, security right. guard and all that. My brother has done it, right? Um, and it took him eight years to go through, to work a little bit, save some money, go to school, uh, to, to, to finish college, more or less. And uh, when I joined him, I joined him right, I came right around the time he was, um, he was finishing high school. I, I actually came to see him graduate, right? Wow, okay. Right? Initially, the plan was for me to get here, uh, spend the summer, uh, see him, you know, watch him, uh, see him graduate, and then go back home. But um, when I got here, spent the summer, the plan was for me to go back, finish high school, and most likely either go to France or, you know, uh, Canada or the U.S. For, for, for college. And my father, um, my father had, um, he, he's the type of guy that always encouraged us to essentially argue any position we have with him. Right. So I ended up having to go. I ended up trying to convince him that me staying in the United States is, um, is actually a good thing for me because I already spoke French. So finishing high school and uh, going to France to study would not be as beneficial to me as staying in the United States, learning, learning English and mm -hmm. uh, being more of a global citizen. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, at 15 years old, my dad agreed and he allowed me <laughs> to stay. Uh, and sometimes I wish he didn't agree <laughs> because what, uh, what unfolded after that was, uh, was pretty much very life changing. So I stayed, I, um, I spent one, I, I decided, and this happened around 9-11, right? Okay. 9-11 so had just happened and, um, the, xenophobia was through the roof in uh, in the United States. Yes. And my full my full name is Ibrahim Ajalo. Ibrahim yes. is a Muslim name as you can come up with. Uh, pre pretty much. So is the last name too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, my, my name is Ibrahim. My brother's name is Mohammed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So our um we thought that okay, there's no way, there's no way. I'll, um, I'll be able to get papers here in the United States. So at 15, I decided that I'm going to immigrate to Canada. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and You're, you and, know you were still a minor, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I found out eventually. That's the thing here. <laughs> and um, and I, I did the plan was to take a Greyhound bus and go to all the way to the Canadian border. And then once I get there, try to get papers in Canada. Um, I got intercepted. I got arrested by US immigration along the way, about 20 minutes away from the Canadian border. Um, I guess, you know, they stop our boss. The, the details around it are hilarious, but you know, we'll talk about that another time. Our next podcast, right. Yeah. <laughs> they stop uh, our boss, pull me out of it. Um, and to this day, I still remember, you know, they stopped me and asked, you know, are you, you a citizen? Uh, no, are you uh, a permanent resident? No, do you have a visa? No, 
and then like how are you here and at that point I, I again my english was still bad at the time and i thought you know what it does not serve me well to keep talking to this guy so i switched to french and told him you know désolé monsieur je parle je comprends pas anglais and eventually i told him i don't understand he laughed and says all of a sudden how convenient all of a sudden you don't speak any english i was essentially lying i get arrested thrown in the back of a of a patrol car and again being young and stupid at 15 the first thought that occurs to me is wow how cool right i'm in the back of you know it's like the movies right the know? american movie right the american movie, <laughs> exactly that i grew up watching you know it's one of those things i'm watching i'm like oh, i wonder what that would be like right so for a second it was kind of cool but that kind of went away very very quickly yeah, yeah. Um, Unfortunately, too many black men in America have that experience, and it's never yeah, cool. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't quite know the extent of that at that time. <laughs> I would not have been very excited, you know. And, and I, I feel very differently about sitting in the back of a patrol car now. Right. Um, and so I end up being taken from there, uh, escorted by two U.S. marshals, and flown to I didn't know then, but what ended up being the middle of Pennsylvania. Uh, to be held in a juvenile detention center for unaccompanied uh, immigrant immigrant kids. So I was there with you know kids ranging from 17, borderline 18, all the way down to like you know little kids, you know, five, wow. six, seven year old kids, you know, very young kids. Um, I spent almost a year of my life in there. So through 16, I was locked up with the only crime being born in the wrong country. Yeah. Um, I think we have a name for those countries, don't we? Uh, yeah, I think, I, I think they have a special name for them. Well, yeah. The current yeah. administration. <laughs> All right, we take it out of the term of endearment. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you do, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so from there, I end up, um, I end up with, um, end up being placed with a foster family in Michigan, thanks to some, um, Nonprofit organization that were advocating on behalf of the kids there, trying to convince you know the immigration to you know release these kids while their cases are pending, let them go live a normal life, and if they don't get you know the cases are not approved, we can still ship them back to to their country, but for the time being, let them go and go to a proper school, etc. And that's how I ended up being released. So they couldn't you know my brother couldn't take me in. He's 18 years old, live in New York, doesn't have papers, so they wouldn't allow him to take me anyways um and he barely can find enough to eat right he's working jobs i mean i told you he's working jobs six days a week 12 hours a day making 250 dollars an hour and living in an apartment with eight other people you know um so i end up in michigan luckily enough uh i happened to end up in a, with a great foster family in michigan uh even later on i found out how how lucky i was right mm -hmm. uh, because i got to learn the foster care system in the u.s in detail and it's not a pretty picture you know i saw some kids that kid that were that were brought in that were taken in by the family i stayed with uh, that i lived with um the Valors, and this kid was you know the Im imagine a, a a puppy that's been abused its whole life how it reacts to someone coming towards it, 
that's literally yeah. this kid was like, you know? Yeah. And he was, I think, 10, 12 years old, something like that. Um, yeah, and I saw many, many stories like that. It's, it's, yeah. it's a very heartbreaking uh, system. Anyways, that kid had been bounced around so many times, it's not even funny. Um, so yeah, I ended up in Michigan, you know, in the middle of Michigan, small town in Michigan. Um, beautiful state, though. I do love Michigan, yeah. Beautiful state, a beautiful state. I miss the summers in Michigan, <laughs> uh, a lot of lakes. Um, yeah. So I end up there. Within two years, I go from being home in a secure environment, place where I knew everyone, where I spoke the language fluently, where you know my family is essentially the point of reference in the neighborhood, um, to an environment where no one looks like me. I can hardly communicate with people uh, with a brand new family, <laughs> you know? Um, so there was a lot of, it, 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 there was a lot, there was a lot of learning in a very, very, very short time, right? But, you know, that gave me the, the, the space to finish high school. Because um, when I was 15, I was already a senior in high school when I got here. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I skipped a couple of, I skipped sixth grade and I skipped 10th grade when mm -hmm. I was back home. So um, I finished high school here in the, in the States, ended up going to Michigan State University for college. Um, because at that point I still didn't have papers. So when I actually, when I graduated high school, I had the grades to pretty much go anywhere and get scholarship, but I didn't have papers. Right. So I took six months off, um, got a job. Well, look, the family, um, the, the family I stayed with, um, the, 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 the patriarch, Damon, was the manager of a security company. So I got a job working at a, at a rent-a-car. Flashlight security guards. That was my first Another job. another typical blackmail experience. Another typical blackmail experience, you know. <laughs> but you know, it was great because my boss was my father, pretty much. Right. Uh, and you know, I had good I had good details. Uh, I ended up working for the state police in Michigan. <laughs> with no papers. <laughs> no papers. Well, no, at that point I had gotten work. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> um, I had, uh, you know, I, I, like, I, like I was saying earlier, I came, I came across so many generous people. The lady that helped me um, get my papers here was a pro bono attorney who ended up getting my case while she was working with uh, Latham and Watkins, which is like a, like a hot shot, you know? Yep, I know them, yeah. They're a law firm here uh, worldwide, pretty much. She was in California. My case ended up on her desk somehow with a pro bono case. She took it on and she, she like put her everything into this thing. You know, she would fly out to Michigan um, and, you know, to represent me. Like she, this lady did amazing work for me, Jill, Jill Zimmerman. Uh, we're still, we're still friends and she wow. lives, she's in Oakland. Um, so yeah, managed to finish high school there, got my papers. After those six months, I, I finally could apply for um, FAFSA and get student loans and uh, went to Michigan State. Started out as a physics major, ended up uh, switching to engineering. Um, I did material science and engineering with a focus on biomaterials, finished undergrad. On biomaterials? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, you know, the thinking, uh, pretty much since I was in middle school, the plan was to go to medical school. And that's the path I was on. Um, okay. And here, I, you know, to go to medicine, med school, you need, you don't, 
you didn't at the time you didn't need to have an undergraduate degree you just needed like 90 credits or something mm -hmm. that's so close to having a full degree that right everyone just gets a degree in something right right um so for me i thought okay i don't want to do pre-med it's too generic i don't want to do uh, just basic biology i could not fall back on it if i don't go to med school plus i say i thought to myself if i'm going to study i want to study something hard and mm -hmm. it's commonly accepted that engineering is the hardest thing you can actually study so i want to be an engineer and i like to know how things work so i focus on biomaterials because that would help me if i went to med school that's how that ended okay up. got it um finished undergrad unfortunately i graduated in 2010 mm. so finding a job in 2010 you know wasn't exactly um no, you not not a good idea, especially with a, a major in biomaterials. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and the second thing is, uh, a lot of engineering firms tend to be in the middle of it, like in the countryside, in the middle of the U.S. Right. And I didn't want to live there. I wanted to move back to New York so I can be with my brother. It's the only family I have here, so I wanted to be close with my brother. I moved back to New York. Um, I had been waiting tables throughout college in Michigan. So when I get here, I got a job in, in hospitality again, mm -hmm. uh, start bartending, uh, in the, and I apply for, grad, for graduate programs in Europe. Mm -hmm. Why uh, Europe? Um, so I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I couldn't mm -hmm. do it here, but to me, it's the thinking was the actual content of the education I can, that I get here and that I get in Europe is pretty more or less the same. Uh, and I value the, 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 the adventure component of going abroad much more so than the educational component. I can open up books and read everything I'm going to learn at school at that point, you know? So for me, it was a much better, I, um, I could learn far more by going to a completely new place than I could staying in the States. Okay, so let me just stop here for a second, okay? So here's how somebody might hear the story you just told. My father brings me to the U.S. to visit my brother, who's basically been abandoned in the U.S. by the family that arrived. And I decide I want to stay and hang out with him because, you know, he graduates from high school. So I convince my dad, my loving father and mother, to leave me in this country where my brother has been struggling so that, you know, I can but, have a shot at it. By the way, my parents didn't really know the extent of the struggle my brother was having. Otherwise, he would have been home in a heartbeat. You know? I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, the average parent in the US at the thought of leaving their child, their teenage child, in another country for any reason, um, <laughs> with even friends of the family, like that is just not something that people think about, okay? But yeah. then for the average, 15-year-old American child to want to leave, <laughs> okay, or yeah. stay in a place like that, any place. Yeah. Also very atypical, okay? Um, and then given what you just told us, for you to get to a place where you have your papers and you've completed college and you're, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then it's time to go to graduate school and you're able to figure that out. And you're in, you know, a, a country with some of the top graduate schools in the world, but you go, no, I think I want to take my chances in Europe. 
<laughs> and let me guess, you didn't go to a French-speaking graduate school. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> I spoke French already. There's nothing. Right. Why would I do that? Yeah. Uh, I went to Germany. <laughs> oh, sprechen Sie Deutsch. Okay. Yeah, ambition. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's exactly that because you know, you're right. Um, the average American parent, the story I just told, the average American parent would be mind-boggled. I mean, it would be, honestly, it's mind-boggling to any parent, right? But, you know, um, the realities of the part of the world I come from are very different from those of folks in America and the Western world in general. Uh, my father had, my father actually um, went to, um, had a fellowship to study here in the States. He was a Hubert Humphrey fellow. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an economist. And mm -hmm. after, after finishing his graduate program, he, he came here, he was teaching at Boston University and Penn State, and he, you know, and he also was also going to school here. Uh, he could have stayed here, um, brought us all here at a really young age, family would have grown up here, and we would have had more or less a fairly comfortable life, right? Mm -hmm. But he chose to go back home because he felt that the, the explanation he, he gave me was, um, if I stayed in the U.S., I would have had a phenomenal job, would have lived well, all of you guys have grown up there, and things would have been nice. But um, I felt that in the States, I'd be just another economist. But if I went home, uh, my skill set could make a lot of people's lives much better. And it did, you know, went back, you know, um, he, the, 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 the village he comes from, he, he, the way he went to school, it would be a day's walk for him to get to his school. So at a really young age, his dad would, on Sunday, his dad would walk him to like essentially for a day mm. to this town where the only school in that whole region was. Uh, and his dad found a family there to, to take him in for the week and then drop him off and he's a little kid, six, seven years old, and he'll come back and pick him up on Friday. So in some way, it's like, it's like we're repeating the process my dad go, went through. Yeah, you know? And it was really, really hard on his parents. And I cannot explain to you how hard it was for my parents to actually allow us to come here at such an early age oh. on our own. You know, my mom told me that afterwards, He'd never seen my dad cry, but he'd walk in on my dad in his room, blacked mm -hmm. up, crying, mm -hmm. and saying, I threw away my kids, mm -hmm. you know? But he did it essentially to give us a shot at, at a better life, more or less, you know? Well, and more importantly, as difficult of a decision that he made, and any parent would make, yeah. um, he obviously had been preparing you for that day. His whole, your Absolutely. whole life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he, did, he didn't just drop you off. He Not at planted, all. He planted you. He did. <laughs> I like that. I like that. In perhaps rocky soil, but nonetheless, it yeah. was nutrient rich. It was nutrient rich. <laughs> no one could see it on the surface, but it was very nutrient rich. Um, and, and you're right. Um, my dad, my dad uh, had a very unique approach in the way he raised us. At a really, really young age, he gave us a lot of responsibility. I remember mm -hmm. when I was in kindergarten. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like he would, you know, I remember this. I, I, I don't know why, but this is one of the few things I remember from that time period. 
uh, because he was so, you'll see, he, he would, one time came for us to pay our tuition, he would, and it was a lot of money to give to a little kid, you know, mm -hmm. uh, he would take the tuition and before going to school, he'll bring me, like he'll bring us in his room and say, all right, the tuition money, put it in your backpack. When you get to school, go to the office, pay the tuition, ask for the receipt and bring it back to me. Okay. He didn't mm -hmm. have to do that. The school wasn't very far from where we lived, mm -hmm. but um, it, I realized later that it was getting us comfortable with mm -hmm. taking our responsibility at a really you know, young age. My mm -hmm. mom was, um, was um, uh, a merchant and she had an amazing story like that would actually blow mine and my brother's story out of the water. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> um, at, when I was 10, 11 years old, my mom would give me the equivalent of, I don't know, like in our money there as if you gave a 10, 15 year old $100,000. Right. Here. Yeah, and she would give me that money to take to the, to the city to change it into France CFA or other currencies mm -hmm. so that she can travel, you know, in the regular course of her business. Mm -hmm. And she would entrust me with this money to go do it and taking public transportation. Right. Right. And so you get comfortable with taking on big responsibility big early. Responsibilities like this early on. So by the time we came, even though it was a fairly uh, young age, I think we're better prepared than your average 15 year old to right. take on be being in an uncomfortable position, you know? Right. Um, and yeah, so I, the, the, the grad school I went to, well, I applied to three, funny enough, I applied to three programs. It was, um, an EU funded fellowship. They have a bunch mm -hmm. of Mundus. I applied to three programs. Uh, I was turned down by two of them and I got into the most prestigious one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, you, know, you know, right. And I had, I had the option of, it was a program between France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, the U.S., the University of Wisconsin, and Japan, and mm -hmm. also with some affiliates in uh, Brazil. Mm -hmm. You had to pick one place, spend the first year of the master's, and then spend another six months uh, uh, in one other different country, mm -hmm. and then pick uh, a thesis advisor in any one of those countries to do your research on. Mm -hmm. I picked Germany because uh, France, like I said, I spoke French, so I felt like, you know what, it's not going to be a big learning curve for me. So I want to go right. that's completely foreign. And I picked Germany and I went to Germany. Se the second reason is, it's engineering. And I felt if there's any place who's engineering in really right. would be respected in the US, it would be Germany, Switzerland, and Japan. Yeah. The Brits, maybe. Brit the other Western European countries, too, but Germany is just known for that. Engineering. Yeah, I would have picked it based on cuisine. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually very good food in Germany. No, I know. I'm just teasing. No, it's I know, you're known right. for its good food. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> because it's so diverse. <laughs> France. France would have been the color. <laughs> right, you would have been in France if it was me. <laughs> so, so I did spend six months in France because okay. I could not, you know, in the south of France, it was awesome, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I did my master's, you know, my master's degree in Germany, learned a lot, um, and not just academically, but it really, really, it opened my worldview in a way that even leaving Guinea and coming to the U.S. didn't. You know, because mm -hmm. as a kid, you see the world differently than you do, at, you know, at 22, 25, you know. Right. So 
yeah, grad school, finished that. Uh, the plan was to finish grad school. I had already, since undergrad, I had already spent a lot of time looking into financial services. I wanted to go into investment banking or management consulting because I felt that it exposed me to a lot of industry. Mm-hmm. But the plan was to come back from grad school, be a hot chat investment banker in New York mm-hmm. City or some you know, management consultant, work for a few years, make a lot of money, um, save up enough, and then go start something. Um, when I got back, decided not to do that. I said, well, mm-hmm. that's a long way to starting a business. Why not just jump right into the business? <laughs> you know? So and what year back. was this? Yeah. Uh, what's yeah. that? What year was that? This was in 20, I graduated in 2014. So I was in Europe okay. from 2012 to 2014. So this was right around the time I met you. Yeah. Yeah. I came back in August 2014. I came back in the top of 2015. There you go. From, from the West Coast. Yeah. So, so I, I, I know. I so think, we met when you had just returned. I never knew that. That's interesting. Yeah. I just returned and I, I took a job at Miss Bartending. Yeah, that's what um, I met you. And eventually I started managing their beverage program there. And right around that time, right when I came back, I started working on this um, news aggregation app that a friend of mine that was building. Um, and we had already started thinking about this idea of starting Jinjan Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, developing and bringing to market food and beverages that are based on the traditional African recipes we grew up on. Um, and in 2015, we started the research at that bar. I would bring samples of the batches of ginger. I would drink them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and thank you for that. It was fantastic for market research. You know? <laughs> I was like, yum, 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 yum. And you know, was it not only great market research, but a lot of connection, a lot of my really close network today, I mm-hmm. met while doing that. Uh, mm-hmm. right here in the heart of Harlem. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a, a, a very crucial point in the whole development of our, of our business, you know? Yes. And yeah, in 2015, we launched the business in July 2015. Uh, we, when, we, when we decided to do this, we had less than $500 to get going. And week by week, we'll pay our bills, pull our cash together, and, um, and do the next thing we needed to do until we had a product and it's been a fun ride ever since. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and thank you because, you know, we always hear from people sort of after the hard work has been done. Right. <laughs> you know, and now they're, you know, now they're on the cover of Forbes or whatever, whatever. Right. And, right. and, you know, and we get to hear the highlights as if that's the real story when in right. reality it's the tough decisions and it's the scary moments and, it's the moments that are only upheld by prayer from people right. far, far away that really tell the story. Absolutely. So, so thanks for listening to part one of our two-part session with Raheem Diallo. Um, I hope you enjoyed this session because I think it's important that we understand how people come into the front story, not just the the front page story, but the front end story of how people create great things in life um, and how they use their lives and what are some of the things that are in the soil of their lives that help them get ready for the challenges and the successes that often make it to the front page of our, you know, our, our mainstream media. Um, so for the second part, we're going to hear more from Raheem um, about the work, about the business, 
about the current struggles and challenges and opportunities that he and his brother are facing today. So join us. Thanks for listening. Uh, there's plenty, plenty more to be coming. And uh, I hope you subscribe to Leading in a Virtual World. Have a great week.